Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Late one night, many years ago, just after college, a friend and I rode a red line train home to Somerville. We'd been burning the candle at both ends. In the mornings, I was organizing with the Clamshell Alliance and she with the Hunger Project. And in the evenings, we were working for Massachusetts Fair Share, whose offices were just kitty corner from here. We were so tired, we weren't even talking. We were so tired that my friend took off the button she always wore, which said, ask me about the hunger project. (laughs) And then at the same moment, our weary eyes went to a placard above the seats across the aisle. Who knows why the US Forest Service was advertising on the Boston subway, but there he was, Smokey the Bear. And under his giant furry countenance were those immortal words, only you, only you. My friend reached into her pocket and put the ask me button back on. An iteration of a quote from the great Rabbi Hillel asks, if not you, who? So much good comes from answering the call implied in only you and by extension, only we. Do you know about plogging? with a P. The Swedes finally gave a name to what a lot of us have done for years. Get ready for it. Picking up trash while walking or out for a run. The word is from the Swedish plocka up, meaning to pick up. According to the nonprofit Keep America Beautiful, cleanup costs the United States $11.5 billion each year. To plog, you simply put on a pair of gloves, grab a bag, and go, bending over to pluck up trash, and then posting a picture of it to Instagram. Note that you don't have to pick up everything, only what's in your path. Last year, in the United States, Turkey, China, and Australia, in a huge field of competitors, Plogging, also known as trash running, was named the fitness trend of the year. Beginning in April of 1994, within 100 days, as many as a million Rwandans died at each other's hands, as much as 20% of the total population. Five years later, I had the honor of bearing witness to sessions of storytelling by both Hutu and Tutsi survivors of the genocide. 
Their stories were violent and terrifying. But they knew not to free fall into the morass of those memories of humanity's inhumanity. When the horror and despair threatened to sink us all, a ripple would go through the room and someone would call for a dance. Standing in place and then circling the room, they accompanied themselves with tunes that began gently and grew louder, now clapping and stomping alone and then arm in arm. I sat in my seat, my eyes smarting with tears of deep sorrow and sheer awe at their determination and resilience. But no one stayed seated for long. Up, up, they called, and so we danced. We danced. And then we sat again, strengthened for more remembering, more telling. On the final day of our gathering, the Rwandan women brought me a gift of a long, wide swath of brightly batiked cloth and wrapped it around and around and around my waist. Don't forget to dance, they said. Remember, tell, and don't forget to dance. My friends of blessed memory, Ruth and Peter Fleck, escaped the Nazi invasion of Holland. They were my first authorities of living in the face of depravity. Many years ago, despairing at the state of our country, I asked Ruth what I should do. Her answer was like a koan, a puzzle, whose solution I continue to strive to live into. She said, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm thinking about Smokey and Plogging and the Rwandas and Ruth Fleck because I found it true that while achieving great things might feel exhausting and hopelessly out of reach, we are called, as Mother Teresa said, to do small things with great love. We, all of us, are called, only you, only we, to pick up the trash, both literally and figuratively, to remember, tell, and dance, and just keep doing it. There's a story from the Holocaust I heard only recently. The headline is that a Japanese gentleman named Chiyune Sugihara saved thousands of Jews with his handwriting. In the words of psychologist Philip Zimbardo, the very same situations that inflame the hostile imagination in some people, making them villains, can also instill the heroic imagination in other people, prompting them to perform heroic deeds. Two characteristics of those who rescued Jews are that they exhibited a streak of independence and that they were possessed of a strong moral compass. Chiyuni Sugihara was defiant. In 1934, he was serving in Manchuria as Japan's vice, vice minister of foreign affairs, but resigned in protest of his government's treatment of the Chinese. And he exhibited a heroic imagination. 
while the vast majority of the world disregarded the plight of the Jews, Chiyone Sugihara could not and did not. In 1939, he was sent to Lithuania to run the Japanese consulate. Soon, he was confronted with Jews fleeing German-occupied Poland. He cabled his embassy asking for permission to issue visas to the refugees. His superior telegrammed back a firm no. No exceptions. There's a samurai maxim that says, even a hunter cannot kill a bird that flies to him for refuge. While most saw throngs of desperate foreigners, Chiyune Sugihara saw human beings. He discussed the situation with his wife, Yukiko, and their children. And they decided that despite the inevitable destruction of his career, he would defy his government. He knew he could save the refugees through a very simple but essential action, writing visas. In an interview years later, he said simply, there was no other way. Day after night after day, Chiyune Sugihara wrote at least 6,000 visas for refugees to travel through Japan to other destinations. When he finally fell into bed, exhausted, Yukiko would massage his aching hands. In 1940, when Japan closed the Lithuanian embassy, he took the stationery with him and continued to write visas that in actuality weren't legal, but worked because he signed them and affixed the government seal. When he was forced to leave Lithuania, he gave the consulate stamp to a refugee to forge more visas, and he literally threw visas out of the train window to people standing on the platform. In many cases, entire families traveled on a single visa. It has been estimated that over 40,000 people were saved because of one man. I told the Minister of Foreign Affairs it was a matter of humanity, he said. I did not care if I lost my job. He was summarily dismissed and went from being a foreign service officer to working menial jobs. He never spoke about his wartime activities. Even people close to him had no idea he was a hero until 1968, when a survivor named Yehoshua Nishri found him. Yehoshua Nishri had been a teenager in Poland. He was saved by a Sugihara visa, and he was working at the Israeli embassy in Tokyo. Finally, Chiyune Sugihara's life-saving contribution was recognized. His son, Nobuki Sugihara, remembers his father as a very simple man. He was kind, loved reading, gardening, and most of all, children. He never thought that what he did was notable or unusual. Obviously, the image of Chiyune Sugihara being faced with incoming waves of refugees fleeing for their lives, writing visas while others were bolting the gates of entry, brings to mind the horrific crisis at our southern border today. I invite us 
to keep the image of 6,000 handwritten visas before us. Just one person, inundated, exhausted, defiant, refused to close his eyes to the chaos and despair and chose instead to follow his moral compass, open his heart, and take action. A life-giving, death-defying answer to despair. And while Chiuni Sugihara might well have forged ahead alone, I am deeply moved that he included his family in his decision-making, all in. When Smokey says, only you, he also means only we. To deeply encounter despair is both a personal commitment, only you, and a communal commitment, only we. This is American poet Mary Oliver's wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Beloved spiritual companions, it's up to us, only you, only we, to keep doing what we're doing, we don't have to pick up all the trash, but we are called to clean up what is before us. Remember, tell, and don't forget to dance. If you are despairing, I encourage you to find your people here, your pack your tribe, your beloved spiritual community. And in the face of all the forces mitigating against open-heartedness, open your heart. Let us love each other well. Together, let us answer despair with love. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, 
ASCBoston.org.